Hey everyone, welcome to the latest Courageous Conversation and with me I have got Linda Rudd who sits on the board of the Real Estate Institute of New South Wales with me and so much more. Welcome Linda. Thank you Leanne. Lovely to see you. So tell everybody what your current role is. So I'm currently partner and national head of asset management services at Knight Frank Australia. Um, so we oversee the delivery of property management, facilities management and accounting services uh, to our clients that can range from institutional investors to private investors in property. And that's across all asset classes. So commercial, office, retail and industrial logistics. Mm, okay. And you've got something in the order of like 400 people reporting I- to you? I do, I do. Um, look, we are a resource-heavy business, um, yeah. but certainly when it comes to servicing property, we, we do that with some fantastic uh, team members and personnel across Australia. Mm, wow. And that's about half um, of the Night Frank workforce that are in your team, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. So we're about a workforce across Night Frank of 800 people in um, every major city. So, yeah, so asset management services, we, we call it AMS for short. Um, yeah. But, yeah, we, we represent about 50% of the business. How on earth do you manage uh, a team that big, particularly, you know, I know that you work remotely um, a lot of the time. How on earth are you managing that and, and how has everything changed since the pandemic? Yeah, look, first of all, I have a fantastic team um, and that includes my senior leadership team. So I have a partner and head of state in each of the states and right. and they largely uh, localise our service. So Night Frank is a global company, um, but we always provide localised services. So even in Australia, whilst, yes, we're a national and across Australia, it really is about how we deliver services to each of those states uh, and certainly regions within those states. And that really comes down to having a really good uh, national executive team that supports the delivery Um, and also one of our strengths and kind of um, I guess market leading selling points is our systems and platforms so we manage property I think we've got something like 7.5 million square meters under management and uh, we do that with the 400 people but by providing them a really strong support network so that they can do their jobs really well and that includes across systems process procedures and just in terms of coaching and guidance and uh, people are our number one priority I know probably a lot of groups say that but that truly is um our focus at night frank yeah right do you know everybody's names <laughs> i know most people's names actually <laughs> and, and i know i know i know what their what properties are allocated to and yeah. what clients they work with and when i used to be able to get around to travel to the states i'd be able to have conversations directly with the team and i love hearing from them and hearing their different insights and uh, the different properties that they manage and even though it's a team of 400 it really does feel quite a small team and we're all very connected and yet it's funny to say that because you wouldn't really think that just no. i guess by by sheer number wise but no we we are quite a small uh, team and you know we're all we're all looking out for each other which is actually really yeah quite that's really nice um so how did you get to where you are where did you start your real estate career well, it's funny. I remember uh, in year 12 and you finish your HSC and everyone sort of seemed to know what they wanted to do and go be, be moving directly into university. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, I haven't really been out in the world technically. School is a bit of a bubble in some respects. So uh, I agreed with my family that I would take a kind of gap year, but go and work in the Sydney CBD and then really get a feel for perhaps where I wanted to build a career. I was fortunate to, to take up a role with an architecture firm and they also did tenant rep and advisory and 
So uh, I was just doing reception and sitting on the front desk. There was some agencies. All of the best through. people started at reception. <laughs> yeah. And it, actually, it's one of, like, it gives you such a good insight into the people nice. visiting a company. And so there was, uh, given we were responding to briefs, uh, well, certainly um, the operator at the time was responding to briefs, I got to meet quite a few commercial real estate agents. And just by chatting to them and understanding what our team did in the tenant rep side, it really kind of heightened my interest in property. So um, true to my word, after a year, I sat down with my dad, who's been a fantastic kind of mentor to me. Nice. Uh, we did a page turn and we, we both ended up on the property economics degree and I could study at correspondence so I could still work as well. Um, and I was living in the Blue Mountains, so I caught the train in, which took an hour each way. And hence I had, you know, two hours of study I could read um, per day. And I think... I think then really um, correspondence learning was like sending you a bunch of textbooks and a whole thick binder of information and giving it to you to it read. Was hard. So. I did a lot. Yeah, I did a lot of study by correspondence and it was not easy. You've got to be very disciplined and you've got to be good, a good reader. Yeah, and so I, I, well, I say I'm very disciplined. At times I'm not, but um, I, I do enjoy my reading. So, um, And so, yes, yeah, so I did that for about three years. I finished in four years, but I think it was about a year. It might have been two years um, before I finished the degree. I decided to go into a commercial agency uh, property group. And so I started with CBRE okay. and, uh, again, took a kind of property administration role in their property management team um, at one of Sydney's A-grade assets here in the CBD. But I had in my mind I was actually going to go go and study, uh, sorry, go and pursue valuation. But I you guess know, that it, was my first qualification, valuation. <laughs> Do you believe it? Yeah. Yeah. So not me, but anyway. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, um, I I, even now working with you know students in our Night Frank student program, quite a few of them pursue valuation as a start without necessarily kind of having exposure to to the wider gambit of um, commercial property. So I was very fortunate to have some fantastic um, operators that I work with, and uh, you know, really good boss at that time that said, I don't think you'll be suited to valuation, and why don't you pursue a career in property management? And I guess that was it from there and I stayed with CBRE in Sydney for four years and then I moved to London for just under five years with CBRE wow. um, and then I relocated back to Sydney in 2012 um, and took a couple of months off which I always recommend I had three months off and it actually went very quickly um, but I can't remember the last time I would have had that much time off <laughs> so, um, and so then you I took three with- months off before you actually got another job Correct. Yeah, yeah, I did. And then uh, caught up with some previous team members I used to work with at CBRE being Stephen Ellis uh, and a gentleman called Aaron McGee. So they were at CBRE and they'd moved to Knight Frank. Um, and so they, they gave me a pretty good opportunity and a very good sell on Knight Frank. And I guess the rest is kind of history. And yeah, uh, yeah here I am leading the team and across asset management services, which I'm very proud to do. Yeah, so you should be. It's an amazing role. And there's not that many women in leadership, particularly in commercial real estate. And you also sit on the board of uh, of Night Frank. How's that? Yeah, look, um, I think first of all, in terms of women in commercial real estate, gosh, it can it applies to a, a lot of other industries as well. But I suppose where we can make change in our roles is in real estate. I certainly feel that women that are going to be the future leaders of both Night Frank and businesses across commercial real estate do want to see someone in that position. So it gives them a sense of, I guess, opportunity and that, you know, someone of their gender or even across a range of different factors can actually uh, be a senior leader in a commercial real estate business or any other other business. So um, for me, I actually 
I worked in London with some very strong women who were kind of my mentors and, and really coached me around. But also I've, I've had the fortune of working with um, a lot of great men who have just been super supportive. And I think when it comes to it is if you work hard and you do a really good job, you do get noticed yeah. and then you do get supported. And if, if that's not the case, uh, then I wouldn't be sticking around wherever you are um, because it's hard work and good work should always be rewarded. Um, yeah, that's really good advice, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, look, there's still so much more we could do. And I, I, I just, I'm so amazed to see such strong, amazing, intelligent women uh, coming through the business, even at night, Frank, or even in the industry. And I'm really confident about the future. And I think, I think typically there's always a bit of a tipping point in terms of seeing commercial real estate as an industry. I didn't know it existed before I had exposure to it. And it was actually through, again, my conversations, which, you know, in hindsight were probably largely male conversations and them encouraging me to get involved and certainly my male bosses that I had originally at CBRE and then certainly even at Night Frank. So, again, it's the hard work and kind of doing a really good job that gets you noticed and people want you on their team. So, yeah. and in terms of the Night Frank's holding, holdings board, look, we had a, a change in uh, CEO about 12 months ago and certainly Rod Lever came into the business and um, certainly comes from a background which is about diversity and he's pushed that diversity agenda um, in terms of our board composition. Uh, we have one other female non-executive director in Nasima Sparks who's absolutely brilliant. Um, but I think you also, Rod, recognise that people are such a large part of property and relationships and, and client connections and the asset management business being 400 uh, strong in people then to have the leader of that business representing uh, her team at that table I think was critical. I do like providing my insights and um, I guess opinions on matters and input etc uh, and certainly I have an interest in business and, and hence I've done my MBA as well so uh, yeah. I guess it's kind of all worked out and I, I do enjoy sitting at that table and, and debating really serious topics and, and making sure we've got the direction of Night Frank where it needs to be. And so you don't have any trouble getting your voice heard in that forum? Yeah, well, look, no, um, I think it's always a matter of maybe your opinion or point of view might not also always be the one that's taken, but it's important to share it. We, we're quite a collaborative group and we do share a lot of our uh, opinions and we've got representatives from each of the states and even in terms of states wanting different things or having different issues that might be impacting them at a state level versus national, like that's all to be negotiated as a team and the best teams are ones that can be honest and forthright with each other, but then still walk out of the room with a really solid pathway forward. And so. <laughs> so how do you, because not everybody can navigate those conversations effectively, I find. Disagreement doesn't have to be conflict, right? It's just trying to get to the best outcome. So how do you ensure that it is healthy debate even when you're, you know, you've got to sort of say, well, actually, we're not going with your, we're not going your way. How do you navigate those conversations? Yeah, and look, I think being an um, exec director, you, you, I have a business line that certainly I represent, but also I represent a company. And sometimes those, um, the positional direction of your business line versus the company might not necessarily be aligned to what you'd otherwise represent as a business line. And certainly I always consider it as hats. So you've got to kind of take one hat off and go, well, what's a company, what's a company position? And whilst I might not like it for my service line, I've got to really challenge myself. So I think yeah. a lot of it's within us to challenge ourselves and our own viewpoint like you could be dogged and say no this is exactly what I want to do we could listen and kind of find the point of view and try and understand the point of direction as well and compromise yeah. with yourself 
or it might be your your approach that's actually right because you're thinking of you know total people and everyone's like actually we didn't think of that and so it can happen both ways um it's never a perfect I, I guess science and you kind of think back and go actually i'm sure that there's been plenty of conversations we've had but then we've all walked out of the room and the business is still in a really strong position even despite the last six months which have been challenging for all businesses so we we always kind of get there in the end but I think you've got to have your point of view and you've got to perhaps challenge yourself beforehand to raise and go actually what point of view am I expressing is it the company one or is it am I just focused on a service line and again that's a tricky balance to strike as a kind of um, exec director so someone that's in the business functionally as well as on the board. It's so important. One of the first things I learned when I became a franchisor was how many different perspectives there were. Nobody was right and nobody was wrong, um, but everybody just looked at things in different ways. And so I really had to challenge myself to be able to, as you say, put somebody else's hat on. And, and if I was an agent in the eastern suburbs, how would I be feeling about what I'm trying to do at corporate? So, yeah, it's, real, it's a really important thing for everybody to learn. Yeah, and I agree. And I'm not sort of kind of over glossing over it or making it seem like it's perfect every time. It can be challenging, um, but you've got to kind of then challenge yourself to learn from it and figure out how you navigate it, which I'm sure you have. And try and, again, if you can walk away from discussion, all parties, including including your franchisee partner or franchisee network, um, that would, yeah, that's a good outcome. Yeah, totally. You did your MBA in various parts of the world, right? You did an international MBA, is that right? Yeah, I did. So um, Sydney University runs a global executive uh, MBA program. And uh, I, I love study. I love learning and, and I love traveling as well. <laughs> so that all kind of married. But this MBA program, uh, at the time, they accepted 20 people into the program. There's usually about 200 plus applicants. So I was very, very fortunate to get into the program. And what they uh, seek to do is provide you insight and a global insight because we are a global economy um, and hence the placements in uh, various universities around the world. And I was, again, given technology disruption, uh, differing business models is kind of critical to business. That was really the focus areas of the MBA as much as you know, core business strategy, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, um, so yes, yeah, so my MBA took me around the world to the US. US, Israel, India, UK. It was just, it was a fantastic experience That's and really eye-opening and plus the alumni network that opens up. But yeah. uh, I talk about something that changes your perspective when you really come back and Night Frank being a global real estate company and CBRE started being one before, you know, before I joined Night Frank. Yeah. I think it's so important to have a global mindset. Um, and again, uh, when things open back up, certainly, or even now, we're still sort of connecting virtually uh, with, you know, counterparts across different countries. And sure. it's important to learn from other countries. And sort of, it's sort of like, I guess, you, um, you know, learning from the understanding different states and the way they're operating even now. It's the same with uh, internationally, different countries operate in different conditions with different requirements, different laws. So getting some insight into some of the businesses um, that we work with in that period uh, was just completely eye-opening. Yeah, it would have been fantastic. My MBA only took me to Parramatta, so uh, it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't quite the same, really. I'm so jealous of your experience. It's almost worth going back and doing it all over again to be able to do it globally. That would be incredible. Where was your favourite um, placement? Ooh, uh, UCLA in LA was a fantastic placement. And I think just because of um, the access to some of the lecturers that we were coached by, so 
we had Keith Chan, who uh, is the, I guess, brain behind Uber and the algorithm that sits behind oh, Uber wow. coming to coach us on multi-sided market strategies. And it was just, you know, it just kind of blows your mind how intelligent these operators are and the, yeah. the platforms that they've built. And of course, everyone knows Uber. So to get kind of uh, a direct insight into, you know, Keith Chan and, you know, 20 of us sitting in a room understanding how they yeah. built Uber, experiences like that, I, I, yeah, they just don't come very often. And probably actually an experience for even in India, or hosted by a university called IIM. Um, but actually in India, it was really about finding a challenge and then building a business model that solves that challenge and, you know, applying design thinking principles. Yeah. Um, but of course, in India, there's so many challenges. And um, on our course, we actually had a gentleman that runs a social enterprise in India about providing you know, education and teaching, uh, I guess, kids in you know, parts of India that are pretty, pretty low socioeconomically um, successful, I suppose, and pretty challenged. So, um, you know, see him providing technology that actually teaches them English to give them a better chance of employment or, you know, success. Uh, it just kind of really kind of grounds you, I think, as well. And you, you really appreciate, A, your life here in Australia, but then the opportunity to study a course like that. Yeah, it's fantastic. I remember when you and I spoke on one of the webinars that we did for commercial real estate, you said that Knight Frank were expecting a black swan event. And so because you prepared your clients for that, a lot of them were not in as difficult a position as they may have found themselves in um, during the pandemic. Can you just explain to me why why you were expecting a black swan event what is the the kind of research that you guys do to predict things like that look i think it was more so we our teams look at research and speculate on property markets you know internationally and in australia and it was our head of capital markets uh, across asia pack that was presenting to our client base here in sydney i think it was about october november last year and there was such an interest and weight of capital coming into Australia in terms of purchasing property, and that was across office or industrial logistics. Um, and then he was actually talking about possible events that might occur, and it was like, okay, well, we've had a really good run in the property industry for you know the last few years, and everyone had been calling five minutes to midnight because we used the property clock as a terminology. And then we were saying in, in last September it almost reset, so it had gone to five minutes to midnight to quarter to midnight. Um, but then they were speculating whether there would be a black swan um, and that's something obviously unanticipated that hits the market and impacts things so I suppose what some companies uh, in the property industry did and was probably more so reduce their um, leverage so the debt that they had against some property and some not all so, like some properties groups run different strategies but certainly some of our institutional groups you'll see um, they might operate at anywhere between 40 and 50 percent leverage maybe even more but they were really bringing down their kind of capital or their, their exposure to debt mm-hmm. um, really just to prepare. And I think that's because, you know, we, again, you, you don't necessarily anticipate a pandemic. I don't think anyone would, mm-hmm. but you anticipate something and it's about how risk averse you want to make your portfolio. And I think that's probably more the point as a, opposed to kind of going, you know, we, we anticipated a pandemic no one could have. It was more so there has to be something coming, something resets that property clock. But even now, um, I would say that I know that there's this question about return to work and the utilisation of offices which is a very current you know matter yeah um but certainly i think you know who knows when things will return to a normal in terms of we're not dealing with a pandemic because there's a a vaccine or whatever else um you know people will or occupants uh and users of cities will use cities differently and now that we've demonstrated that work from home 
you know, can work. Um, and I think that's been a change in mindset. But I think there'll still be a use for commercial office. And even now we're seeing such strong interest, even with the properties that and Frank have listed over the last couple of weeks, there's huge interest still and, you know, interest from offshore groups. And there does still seem to be capital available. And certainly even in industrial logistics, you know, there's, uh, it's, you know, under a surge of huge popularity. So, um, I think property certainly always has um, a use case. Guaranteed, it will always have its challenged environments, and depending on an owner's strategy for dealing with um, or anticipating those events, like again reducing debt, or you know making sure they have longer-term leases on foot, um, or looking at the tenant mix in properties to reduce their risk profiles. So. Again, you may may now look at travel-related industries and say, do I want to have that much exposure to that tenant in my commercial property, etc." Yeah. I think these kind of events really reset people's thinking, again, depending on how risk-averse or not um, an owner may be. So, yeah, so I think um, we knew something was coming because, again, we had a pretty good run. Yes. Um, but, again, again, it's kind of now like let's reset and see where the opportunity is because there always is opportunity in property, as you know, even commercial or residential, um, these these markets move around and sometimes you'll see Perth having a really good run and Sydney not yeah. so much and vice versa. Um, but now, you know, even in residential property, this this move to kind of actually we can work from home anywhere. So let's look at more regional areas or anything in the Southern Highlands right now. Or you know, Yeah, totally. Um, do you think that any of the commercial buildings in the city will convert to residential? Um, look, I think that's never off the table and I only say that in terms of looking at studies of cities and trying to not make cities ghost towns so you know being so concentrated with commercial that on weekends they're empty and that's been a challenge across a lot of cities I still remember this debate occurring when I was in London um, I think mixed-use precincts should actually um, be uh, you know uh, an opportunity for future development and the central city planning strategy looks at, you know, even increased heights and uh, floor plates for certain precincts and blocks around the city. So I think we're still yet to see how our city may change. Um, again, I think uh, in terms of residential at the moment in cities, uh, I know unit sales aren't necessarily uh, having a great run. So sure. again, you've got to then try and anticipate where you might be in the next cycle to understand when you might kick off either uh, asset conversion or a redevelopment, et cetera. Yeah. So um, I would never say never. I think the cities, are, mixed-use cities are always the most vibrant cities and that could be, again, commercial, hotels, residential, and we're seeing some fantastic developments in Melbourne um, come out of the ground and, you know, reach, reach PC that actually do uh, incorporate those three uses. Mm, awesome. Okay. We've been chatting for half an hour. Do you even believe it? Um, <laughs> we can always chat for hours, yeah, Leanne, you and I. <laughs> Absolutely, there's no doubt about that. Before we go, though, I want to just ask you if you've got any tips about having those courageous conversations, those difficult conversations that you sometimes have to have with yourself or um, with team members or clients um, that you rather avoid but you really have to actually actually yeah. um, have. you got any yeah. tips? Um, look, rule number one for me, be honest and be honest with yourself. Um, mm. So if it's a difficult conversation across a matter with a client, I'm always just honest. And I think that's what really holds you in good stead and builds yeah. trust and faith and really focus on the, uh, focus on client service, but ultimately building a relationship. So uh, honesty at all times, that's really my motto. Yeah. Um, and then when you're having those courageous conversations, be honest with yourself as well, because again, similar to what I was saying about taking one hat off and another hat on to really understand different perspectives, be honest with yourself about that to say okay am I just trying to express my opinion or is it the right opinion and I listening to other other parties uh, points of view as well so 
Um, like I, I love a courageous conversation. I think they're absolutely critical to, to pushing forward agendas and progress in general. Um, but honesty is always my number one policy. Number two is integrity too. Yeah, really good advice. And I think being honest with yourself is incredibly important because we do kid ourselves sometimes, don't we? We really <laughs> yeah. do, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, and you should be your best friend. You're just going to be honest with yourself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, well, thank you so much. I know how busy your schedule is, so I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and I will look forward to seeing you again very soon. Well, thank you for the invite, Leanne. Good to see you. My pleasure. Talk soon. All right, see ya.